thing on? Yep. All right, cool. Just uh, water here. And, uh, yeah. All right. So, um, let me introduce myself. I'm Matt Brown. I am. Uh, <coughs> I'm a. I've been at Fire since the, since it started, and uh, I'm a life community leader. And uh, my co-leader is Lynn, best co-leader ever. Lynn <laughs> over there, and uh, we have the best community group ever. So, um, some of you guys probably. Uh, <laughs> So you guys also probably know me through um, the weekly email. If you get the weekly email, I send that out uh, every week. So um, that's for me. <clears throat> so um, this is going to be, uh, the first part is going to be kind of uh, very maddish. Uh, for those of you who know me, um, there's already a few jokes out in the lobby about what I was going to say, and they're right. So, <laughs> um, so before we get to the um, main lesson, uh, let's um, I'm going to be explaining a little bit um, Donald Miller, just so you guys can understand what you're reading, if you are reading a book. So before we get to the main lesson, let's talk about a term you might have heard. It's called postmodernism. I don't have a long explanation of this, just a quick one. Before we had postmodernism, we had modernity. And yes, things working. So one common definition of modernity is a time period of history since the invention of the printing press. The common philosophical belief of the time period was that one could come to truth through science, reason, and logic. Many believe that we are now in the age of post-modernity, um, <clears throat> which began in the 1950s with the mass adoption of television and has continued through the use of digital communication. Post-modernity is characterized by a belief that truth can be achieved through nature, community, art, and culture. Truth is subjective and meant to be experienced and not necessarily learned. Science, reason, and logic are not trusted. A postmodernist could discover truth just by walking through the mountains or hanging out with friends. So one of the uh, best examples I think of this is the show The X-Files. So for those of you who don't know, The X-Files uh, was a television show in the 90s. It was about uh, two FBI agents who investigate cases of paranormal activity. You have uh, Scully, the scientist, who uh, always used her reason and logic to try to explain away space aliens, for instance. And of course, you had Mulder, who embraced beliefs that didn't fit in within the explanations of science. Usually, Mulder was right. Does anyone remember the show's tagline? The truth is out there. Yeah, that's very uh, sort of a postmodern statement there. I think uh, the X-Files is one of the best examples of postmodern philosophy. So, <clears throat> even within Christianity, we have uh, modern, postmodern thinkers. Any of you probably know who uh, Josh McDowell is. He's a famous Christian apologist. He uses historical facts and science and research to explain Jesus. I believe McDowell is a modernist. And there's a uh, growing number of postmodern Christian thinkers. For instance, one of my favorite pastors to listen to is Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill, Seattle. His church has monthly class in popular Hollywood movies. Just last month, they showed X-Men 3 and had a lecture based on theological truths one could get from that movie. 
They're using culture to talk about truths about God. So, one thing is up. Many of us in this room are postmodernists. We don't even realize it. We aren't interested in cold facts or figures about Christian faith. We're interested in our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Many don't want scientific proof that Christianity is the right faith. We just want to experience God. Also, I've heard several of you talk about Miller's writings and how it can be kind of confusing, especially if you're a modernist. I think Miller is somewhere between modernity and post-modernity. In one paragraph, he talks about core Christian doctrine. and In the next paragraph, he'll talk about penguin sex. With uh, Miller's writing, sometimes point C can lead to point L, which then leads to point A, and then goes to point six. <laughs> he talks a lot about conversations he has with friends and what epiphanies he gets from them. So if you're reading him, if you understand that he has postmodern tendencies, you better understand how and why he is writing. All right, this is a little joke slide here. So this is um, <laughs> modern Matt on the, on, the, uh, on the left. And... Uh, He's wearing a kind of boring glasses, and uh, he's sitting on an ugly couch. <laughs> then on the right is postmodern Matt, hanging out with some hipster musicians, and like he wants to say, "Can you hear me now?" So, <laughs> um, one of the things I, I think I should bring up is uh, Donald Miller isn't um, scripture; he isn't God. But uh, I want to uh, avoid some extremes. Many young adults put Miller on a pedestal. He's really a unique writer and has a lot of thought-provoking things to say. I think, however, we should be careful how we elevate him. Many really enjoy his writings. He's just well. Many really enjoy his writings. He's just an ordinary guy who is sharing his thoughts. In fact, I don't think we should we shouldn't be uh, accepting finally accepting Miller's thoughts. Feel free to question what you read. Now, I haven't told uh, Tim Moore this story, but uh, Tim Moore is my roommate. And one day we were uh, sitting in the living room and we were talking about C.S. Lewis and I brought up some theological issues that I had with C.S. Lewis. And uh, Tim brought up some theological issues he had with C.S. Lewis. And here's two guys who probably shouldn't be bad-mouthing C.S. Lewis, but <laughs> we were anyway. But I, I really think this is good. And uh, it's, uh, it's important that uh, we're, we're questioning things and we're, we're really examining what a writer is saying. Um, so the other thing you'll notice about Miller is that there isn't a lot of scripture in his writing we should always be going back to scripture 2 Timothy 3.16-17 says all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work alright <clears throat> another extreme we should be uh, avoiding is looking for mistakes just for the sake of finding mistakes if you're reading a, the book with the intention of finding errors, you'll find them. You can sometimes demonize someone we don't agree with and miss a truth God wants us to hear. So let's avoid all kinds of extremism. So now we're going to um, let's uh, get to the main part of the lesson. I um, played an audio file from Steve Taylor's uh, song called Lifeboat. It's a very satirical and maybe offensive uh, look at contemporary ethics. I think is a good introduction to what we are going to be discussing tonight. In our quest to find our meaning and self-worth, we often look to values that don't really matter. Miller introduces his lifeboat theory with this. There was a lifeboat adrift at sea, and in the lifeboat were a male lawyer, a female doctor, a crippled child, a stay-at-home mom, and a garbage man. One person had to be thrown overboard 
save the others, which person would we choose? Now imagine, if you will, if we were to put your life community, or perhaps your department at work, or your circle of friends in a lifeboat. If you were in a lifeboat, who would you throw off? Most likely wouldn't be the person who could really add value to the safety of the boat. It would be someone who annoyed you, someone who wasn't good-looking, or someone or smart, or someone that you weren't friends with. Most of us wouldn't even think about throwing ourselves off to save the rest of the boat. We don't hesitate to determine other people's value in this lifeboat. I want everyone to take a moment and look around the room. Who do you value and why? Some of you are probably saying, well, I like so-and-so because they're smart, they're good-looking, they're funny, they're spiritual, they're emotionally mature, they have lots of friends. Wouldn't we get defensive if we had to explain to everyone why we shouldn't be thrown off the boat? Think about how defensive we get when someone cuts us in line or in traffic. Why do we get upset? It's because we feel that the person who cut us off doesn't think we have value. When people treat you like this, like they are better than you, you feel violated, disrespected, and unappreciated. So here's the big truth. The thing uh, we know in our heart is true. Human beings need something outside of themselves to tell them who they are and how they are valuable. I'm going to read that again. Human beings need something outside of themselves to tell them who they are and how they are valuable. I'm going to talk about uh, my journey through high school. Uh, I want to tell you about uh, some of my experiences as a teenager in the so-called lifeboat. Uh, My parents were uh, campus ministers. They were home missionaries, and we were poor. We only afford a house in Lowell. So imagine me, smaller and scrawnier, going to a rough inner-city school. Here's the thing. It didn't matter how good you looked, and it really didn't. You wear the worst clothes and have the ugliest haircut. However, it did matter how tough you carried yourself. One day, my family got a call from a close friend in Barreca who was moving to New Hampshire, and they offered to sell their house to my family. My family spent some money together, and somehow we were able to purchase this home. Imagine, if you will, a kid who had survived inner-city school, now going to a suburban school, where all of a sudden, how good you looked mattered. High school, for me, was avoiding everyone, not talking to anyone at all. I'm serious. I talked to no one. I didn't have the right clothes, a decent haircut, and I wasn't prepared educationally or socially. None of this had mattered in Lowell. How valuable did you think I felt? All this while, I was a Christian. I was reading my Bible, praying, going to church. You know all this stuff. I was pretty sad, though, because I didn't have peers who I could relate to, who validated who I was, who let me know my value. So on top of it all, I didn't fit into the uh, church youth group either. The emphasis in the youth group was how athletic and how evangelistic you were. The kid that was put on the pedestal in my youth group was both athletic and evangelistic. As you can tell, not very athletic. So I don't want to blame the youth group or anything for my social struggles because the youth pastor was just working with what he thought would work. I just didn't fit into that ministry at that time. I had a lot to learn. I didn't mean to do that. Anyway, (laughs) turning the corner. So one day I got a ride from the youth pastor after an event. He had asked me if I had any friends. And I said no. 
And the rest of the card ride, I didn't say anything. It was really embarrassing to have to admit that. But I got myself into a cycle of sorts. I had difficulty fitting in. People would notice and would either pick on me or ignore me completely. Just because I would, and, and then I would just withdraw even more. So by junior year, I needed to change. I actually tried to talk to people. I did this at a little bit of time, just like saying hi to people as I walked to class. I did other stuff too, but it was little things, baby steps, if you will. I didn't become a social butterfly overnight, but I started taking risks. My senior year, I found a crowd that would accept me, the art crowd. Some of you would call them goths. They were my art class anyway, but because they, they, um, they've been the hated kids already, they accepted me. Here's a um, picture of me in high school. <laughs> I don't think that blue shirt was ever in fashion. I don't know <laughs> where I picked that thing out. So, uh, and here's what some of uh, my fellow art classmates look like. <laughs> That's, uh, okay, I lied to you guys. That is uh, actually Robert Smith of the Cure. He was not in my class. But uh, that is what they look like. And uh, as you can tell, I did not wear uh, black or I didn't have any lipstick or eyeliner. <laughs> so, uh, lessons learned. Different social, social situations have different social requirements. In Lowell School, you had to carry yourself in a tough manner. In the Baraka School, you had to be good looking. And in the youth group, you had to be athletic and evangelistic. If you weren't those, you were of less value. It really stinks when you don't fit in, and it's, and it's easy to get prideful when you do. It's important that we continue to look at our own li- lives right now and ask what we think is valuable and what isn't. So, as young adults, what sorts of ways do we assign value to others and ourselves? There are two areas I've noticed, one being appearance. We live in a world where athletic equals attractive, Skinny equals sexy, brainiac equals boring, and modest, modest equals mousy. Then there's the issue of morality. As Christians, we easily love those who are morally like us. When someone is morally different from us, we hold back as if they don't deserve our love or love of Christ for that matter. We'll see that neither of these issues should uh, determine who we love and how much we love and how much love we have for the others in this lifeboat we are all in. Jesus wants us to live differently. Let's take a closer look at appearance. As seeing as many, many of us are single, our looks mean a great deal to us. Not only do our looks matter to us, but how other people look matter to us as well. First Samuel 16. <laughs> Some people thought that okay. I'm putting this up so you can all read along, okay? <laughs> First Samuel 16, 1, 6 12. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. 
The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? Is there is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending sheep. Samuel said, Send for him, and let's sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ready with a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, Rise and anoint. He is the one. Now, Israel already had a perfectly good-looking king in Saul. <clears throat> in Saul who, at, who was, as First Samuel 9.2 describes, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. God was letting Samuel know that the heart was most important, not his appearance. Like Samuel, getting distracted by appearance, many of us get distracted by the importance of appearance. Advertisers slam us with this. Uh, you can't see a commercial without being forced to swallow what our culture tells us is beauty. Dove, the soap maker, decided to play off on this. They use ordinary women and put them in an ad campaign. Many of you have seen this ad. It's called the Campaign for Real Beauty. These are uh, screenshots from a movie on that website. Do you realize that the two women on the screen are the exact same women? Woman? Yeah. The first shot is a model who isn't wearing any makeup. Is in fact just showed up at the photo shoot. Second shot is the same woman uh, who has been extremely altered, both with makeup, hair, and Photoshop. I'm serious. You can go to the website and, and watch this, and it's really fascinating. Uh, her chin is like completely different in the, uh, in the second shot. There. Yeah, her eyes are probably smaller. Yeah. Hours are spent making this woman look acceptable to us. Okay, men. Which woman are you attracted to? So, I'm not going to let the women off the hook here. <laughs> I know some of you watch Grey's Anatomy. For those of you who don't know, Grey's Anatomy is a TV show about a young female hospital intern in her love life. It's basically a primetime soap opera. Uh, here's a shot of uh, Patrick Dempsey. McDreamy. <laughs> <laughs> He plays the doctor in the show in a love interest of the main character, Meredith Grey. He's also the crush of many of Grey's Anatomy's female fans. The reason I'm showing this is that both men and women, either consciously or subconsciously, have assigned value to people who look a certain way. Why is it that we judge others, ourselves and others, based on how well we or they match up to these improbable standards? Is it because we have been conditioned by how these kinds of people have received attention and admiration? We have agreed to be in the boat. We have agreed to the rules of life. We are trapped. In first impressions, they trap us too. That person has a bad haircut or out-of-date clothes or facial deformity or crooked teeth. Uh, they can't relate to me, and I don't want to relate to them. This, is trap of first impression. this trap of first impression can kill our ability to love as Christ loved us. Here's uh, another verse uh, that makes a great point. Proverbs 
Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I think this verse could apply to both men and women. Notice it is not saying that good looks are wrong. It is saying that good looks can be deceiving. When you take the time to get to know someone who isn't the prettiest, the best looking, or whatever, you'll actually be blessed. Sometimes you'll discover that these people are really great people that you've just happened to pass by until now. And I'm not saying that pretty people are bad and unattractive people are good. Let's go beyond getting to know the pretty, attractive people. Let's get to know everyone that God has brought into our lives. Um, As Christians, I'm going to look at morality now. As Christians, we often love others by whether or not they meet our moral criteria or not. Luke uh, 7, 36-39. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood there behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his hair with her feet, with, with her tears. Then she wiped them with, with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The issue I want us to think about is how we think of those who are not Christ followers. Many of us have co-workers or acquaintances or friends who are cohabiting, or perhaps gay, uh, use drugs, alcohol abuse, or some other kind of sin, which for some reason we think is worse than the sin in our own lives. How do we think of these people? Do we really have compassion? I uh, work at a company called Avid, and we create hardware and software for movie editing. We often feature, um, we often, uh, feature movies on our website to promote our products. An important detail to this story is that one of my coworkers is gay. One of the movies we used was Brokeback Mountain. I was to take the footage from Brokeback and prepare it for the web. Now, every time we talked about this project I was working on, someone would make a joke about it, even in front of my coworker. Now, I never participated in these jokes, but I never said anything either, and perhaps I should. But if I put myself in his shoes, and I thought how I felt when people made fun of Christians, and I know I don't like it. Here's the thing. It's not natural for us to love those who are morally different from us. Frequently, we determine that the love we show others is conditional on how much they are in obedience to God. Let's uh, continue with the scripture. Then he, Jesus, turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Simon had his life all together. He knew the Bible inside and out and did all the right things. But he missed the point of love. That woman, though, hadn't lived the perfect life like Simon had. She was, according to Simon, a sinner. However, Jesus didn't push her away. He didn't hold out his love until she was perfect like Simon. 
He loved her as she was. So, I want to talk about... Um, we, could, we could talk a lot more about the different ways in which we assign value to others. Worth, work ethic, personality, wealth, race. I don't want to just look at problems, though. I want to start looking at how we can live differently. First of all, I want to talk about to those of you who don't feel like you belong in this lifeboat. You might be struggling with loneliness, depression. Perhaps you don't have the best social skills. Perhaps your dating life is non-existent. Perhaps you've failed morally and are now struggling with guilt. As someone who has struggled with not quite fitting in, here are some suggestions. Spend time with God. Read the Bible. Spend time in the Word perhaps even journal. Really open up to God and tell Him what you're feeling, what is dragging you down. Psalm 25, 14-18 says, The Lord confides in those who fear Him. He makes His covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only He will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. Look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. Here's another suggestion. Talk to others who can help. Your life community leaders would love to listen to you. You can also talk to JT. Uh, Grace Chapel has uh, resources available as well. Let people who can help know what you're struggling with. Finally, take a risk. Like what I did in high school, I just started saying hi to people. Perhaps uh, you should get involved in some service project that you're really passionate about. Or if you're not currently in a life community, you, you should join your life community. Just start out by taking small steps. <clears throat> Don't just stand there waiting for someone to help you. Perhaps, however, you don't struggle with these issues. Perhaps you have a decent position in a lifeboat. You have lots of friends. You're content with your life. How are we to live if we're in this position? Let's go back to the lifeboat analogy. Imagine if you were, will, a beautiful person, a gay person, a fire person who never does anything wrong, someone who is socially awkward, our own lifeboat together. Who would you throw off? The thing about Jesus is these things that we use to measure don't matter to him. Miller says, he, Jesus, has no regard for the lifeboat politics you and I live within every day. He believes in a great deal of absurd ideas. It seemed, he believed, that we should take every opportunity to fail a lifeboat game, not for the sake of failing, but because there wasn't anything to win in the first place. The other thing about Jesus is that he actually likes people. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, moral or immoral, had it all together or not. In fact, Miller points out that the losers of the lifeboat were often the ones who Jesus cared about the most. Jesus loved the unclean lepers, a woman in adultery, the slimy tax collectors, the blue-collar fishermen, and the clueless disciples. Miller says on page 129, entire communities uh, have shunned them and told them they were no good. But God, the king of the universe, comes walking down the street and looks them in the eye, holds their hand, embraces them, eats at their table, in their homes for all the town to see. This must have been the greatest moments of their lives. Jesus doesn't just want to 
but Jesus wants to rescue us from our life in the lifeboat. The lifeboat metaphor is about who God has brought into your life. Your friends, your co-workers, your roommates, significant others, associates, and enemies, and how you love them. And how you love them. Don't rank those who deserve the love of Christ and those who don't. Love everyone. Ah, whoa. All right. You know, we don't need the last slide. So here's the, here's the other thing about the lifeboat, and this is important. It's whether or not you care about your position in the lifeboat. And, and I want to repeat this because this is, this is the most important part. It is whether or not you care about your position in the lifeboat. Ask yourself whether or not your position is important to you. Because Jesus didn't care about his position. And he loved everyone he came in contact with. One of the greatest examples is Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the universe, washing the smelly, stinky, dirty feet of his disciples. Jesus didn't care about his position, and neither should we. I was writing... uh, on the tee into Boston Monday night and reflecting on what I was going to talk about tonight. I had become very conscious of how I was looking at people. I did a little experiment. I looked around at the various characters in the train with me and monitored my first impressions. It was a middle-aged Hispanic woman looking like she was coming home from a long day at work. A businessman with his briefcase in his hand a guy in a fur cap, the kind uh, you'd see on a Russian. At one of the stops, an African-American guy got on the train, and he looked like he was dressed like a gangster, to be honest. And I say this as a confession to you all. The first thing I thought was, I hope that guy doesn't sit next to me. There I was. I was in my very own real lifeboat, and it was a metaphor for the life that I live. Aren't we all in this game of lifeboat? Some of us are winning. Some of us are losing. Many of us haven't even been aware that we are playing the game. My question for you tonight is what are you going to do about it? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this night. I thank you um, for you to come together and and worship you. I pray that uh, we will learn to live a life that is, in fact, different, God. That we won't assign values to people. and, And not only that, but we will love despite what values that we know people have put on them. I pray for safety as we return home. Pray uh, if we continue to hang out tonight. I pray that you will be with uh, with our conversations. In your name, Amen.